Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him, Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. From July the 1st, 10 race programs will become the norm at Sydney's Saturday race meetings. This is the result of the introduction of midway races for horses trained in the smaller metro and provincial stables. Midway races will carry $100,000 in prize money, as will the tab highways up from $75,000, while normal Saturday races will go to $130,000. Country Sky 1 races will go to $24,000, Sky 2 races to $15,000, and Country Non-Tab to $10,000. Another 20 meetings will be added to the Country Showcase series, where minimum stakes will be $30,000. Feature races to receive a prize money boost are the Epsom to 1.5 million and the time-honoured Villiers goes from 250 to 750,000. The English sales this year have produced unbelievable figures at both ends of the market, a clear indicator that many new owners are coming into the industry as individuals, as members of smaller ownership groups or as members of larger syndicates formed by recognised syndication companies. You don't have to own winks to cover all X's and to have a lot of fun in town, on the provincials or on the country circuit. There's never been a better time to go racing in New South Wales. The Gosford Race Club's new showpiece, The Coast, finally got off the ground on Saturday the 8th of May, one year after its proposed launch was abandoned in the early days of the pandemic. The half-million-dollar three- and four-year-old race was brilliantly won by the John Sargent-trained Brandenburg, skillfully ridden by Regan Bayliss, who's totally focused on carving a niche for himself in the fiercely competitive Sydney riding ranks. It was Anthony Cummings who persuaded Regan to try his luck in Sydney when the young jockey returned from Hong Kong last year and is one of several trainers to have given him support over the last nine months. Regan Bayliss is the son of former successful jockey Jamie Bayliss and brother to Jake Bayliss, who rides his share of winners in Queensland. Both Regan and Jake were Queensland-born but were taken to Victoria by their dad in 2010 when they both showed an interest in becoming jockeys. Jake was apprenticed to Mick Kent. Regan learned the basics in the same stable before being signed up by Peter Moody. When Pete decided to relinquish his trainer's licence in 2016, young Regan's indentures were snapped up by Hayes, Hayes and Dabernig, with whom he spent the remainder of his apprenticeship. He was lucky enough to form an association with the top sprinter Red Kirk Warrior, which would bring him three Group 1s and a contract to ride in Hong Kong. This young bloke has crammed a hell of a lot into his 24 years and his journey has only just begun. It's my pleasure to welcome him to the podcast at the end of a busy week. Regan, thanks for your time. Uh, absolute pleasure to be on, John. Thank you very much. Well, you were at the Scone Cup meeting on Friday where you rode a winner, Flying Finch, 
and you had several rides on Saturday at Rose Hill and you won the Denise's Joy Stakes on Ballistic Lover. I'll be surprised if that filly doesn't win in better company. Yeah, it was a terrific win by her. Um, been able to get on her back a couple of times, John, and um, one thing with Joe Pride's horses, they keep improving with each run um, and, they, and they keep raising the bar if they, if they have the ability. Mm. So um, she won well, very well yesterday. She drew a wide barrier and had to work a lot. Only got a little breather, but kicked away and won strongly. So it was a terrific win from her. Let's go back to Brandenburg, who won the coast at Gosford. Uh, you rode him last year, didn't you, in a couple of good races, the Gong and the Golden Eagle. And although he was unplaced, he wasn't far away in either of them. No, that's correct, John. Um, I rode him, Brandenburg, last preparation, but he was a colt back then. Um, and he was running some terrific races, but he had a few quirks to his races. He wanted to lay in badly. Um, and we just didn't know. We knew he had the ability, but we just didn't know if he was um, putting his best foot forward and, and really having a crack in his races. So I think the gelding operation proved successful last week at Gosford. Well, you slotted in beautifully from a wide barrier at Gosford and you followed Rachel King on Nimalee all the way to the home turn and when you pulled out, he showed a tremendous turn of foot on a soft seven track. You don't expect them to pick up like that on soft ground. No, exactly right. Um, he, does like a, he does like soft ground but not heavy ground, so the track that presented, him, presented itself on Saturday was probably perfect for him. Um, and just everything worked out a treat. We are able to get into a lovely spot off a really strong tempo, and as you mentioned before, followed Nimalee, who gave me a really good card up to the corner. I was really impressed with the way he put him away. It was only a matter of strides before he sort of got his head in front and then, and then held his rivals off nicely. See, just a little over a year ago, Regan, this horse ran a cracking third in the Doncaster. Glenn Boss was riding him at the time and he was absolutely wrapped in him. Yeah, no, that's correct. And um, as you know, Bossy will only get – he'll get down to an, a nice lightweight if he if he really likes a horse or if he really likes a three-year-old. So he must have had an opinion of Brandon Burr back then and he did run third in the Doncaster. Mm. Um, so he has got the ability, but as you know, you know if they can stay sort of, you know, colts too long, um, you know they can they can figure out a few tricks up their sleeves. So yeah, uh, back as a gelding, I think you'll see a um, a really good racehorse. Well, he's heading to Queensland with a couple of principal targets: the Doomben Cup on the twenty second of May, and a brand new race called the Q twenty two on Stradbroke Day. Will you be going with him? Yes, most definitely. Um, I'm going up to ride Brandenburg this Saturday in the Durman Cup. Um, and I reckon, you know, having to hop on his back on Saturday morning, I think he'll be peaking for this run. Mm. Um, he'll be going into this run fourth up. And I'm really looking forward to getting him up, uh, um, getting him up, you know, up to a further distance, which he hasn't seen before. So mm. I reckon that he'll relish it and, um, with these softer tracks up in Brisbane, it won't harm his chances at all. You'll enjoy being back in your home state and uh, catching up with family members. You grew up in the great racing city of Ipswich, but you spent every spare minute on a property owned by your paternal grandparents at Ripley, where you tell me you learned to gather melons and pumpkins 
and muster a few cows on horseback. Happy days. Yes, that's that's correct, John. Um, my grandparents and um, my so they are my father's parents. They they grew up in a in a property in, in Ripley, which is probably probably fifty minutes out of Brisbane, and and, and probably only sort of twelve fifteen minutes out of Ipswich. Um, and that's sort of where we learned how to how to ride our horses, mustering cattle, getting on the stock horses and and the ponies, and just having you know just being out in the country. Every chance we got out after school or school holidays would you know send dad would send us straight out there and um, just loved it. Loved being around the animals and loved that sort of country country lifestyle. And um, that's where we really learnt sort of the basics. Your dad, Jamie, finished riding the first time in 1994 before you were born. And after having ridden about 250 winners, including an Ipswich Cup on Dixie Kid, I believe he and Shane Scriven were apprenticed to Tom Dawson at the same time. Yes, that's correct. Um, Dad was a very well-respected rider around Queensland and... um, he was hampered by weight issues and and a few sort of bad falls, um, but that's correct. You come up in a really good era of jockeys in, in Queensland, um, and yeah, he was a as you would know, John. He was a great role model for me, and st- and still is. And um, Jake and I wouldn't be where we are today without him. He's he's taught us taught us everything from scratch, and he's a really really good horseman in his own right, and he's still breaking in horses now and. So we learn a lot from him. When Dad could see that you and Jake were deadly serious about becoming jockeys, he decided to take you both to Victoria, where his old friend Mick Kent was training. I think your dad worked with Mick Kent in Singapore at one time, didn't he? Yeah, that's correct. Dad, when when Dad Dad was finished as a jockey, but he was still riding track work and. Um, he went over and rode for, for Mick Kent um, track work in Singapore uh, and they formed a, um, a good relationship. And Mick always said, when, when those boys are old enough, make sure you send them to Melbourne, um, you know, to come to me when I get back there. So um, I think it was a, it was a very sort of um, bold move by dad, um, you know, as, as two young boys just taking us um, to Melbourne, obviously, Obviously, born in Queensland and, and staying there, Dad stopped his whole training operation, um, handed his trainer's license in, and basically just took his two boys under his wing to give us give ourselves a better chance to be jockeys in a in a higher jurisdiction um, mm. like Melbourne, you know. And you know the way they run their apprentice schools and and everything there it really sort of puts the polish on you. And um, if Dad hadn't have made that move for us, I don't know don't know where it would be today. Mm. Well, Jake was immediately apprenticed to Mick Kent. You more or less learned the fundamentals in that stable until you were old enough to be signed up by the one and only Peter Moody. Yeah, no, that's correct. Um, Mick Kent played a really big part, um, you know, early on. Always went, sort of was attached to, attached to his hip, always went to the races with him and mm. um, always in the car watching track work and, um, basically went everywhere with him and, um, you know, he really sort of introduced me to a lot of people and, and, and taught me how to, how to handle myself. But as you mentioned, John, when I was old enough, I was able to um, sign up to Peter Moody. Um, he was a tremendous boss, um, very hard but very fair. 
um, but give me a lot of opportunities and, and, and really give me a really good kickstart that I needed. Yep. Well, Black Caviar was in the stable when you began your apprenticeship with Peter. It must have seemed as though you were in the presence of royalty. Yes, it was. And I think, you know, he, he had a lot of lot of great horses in the stable at that time, um, you know, group one winner after group one winner. And um, me riding a few of these horses track work just really sort of give me the sense of what a good horse feels like. And, mm. um, you know, it was it was tremendous. And to be there when Black Caviar was there and I was able to hop on her back one morning for a quick photo um, and then quickly jumped off. But she was uh, – yeah, it was terrific. It's something I'll always look back on too because, you know, not many people can say that, you know. So, mm. um, you know, I was only sort of an apprentice at the time, but just to be in her presence and to see how they – you know, how everything everything behind the scenes happened and, yeah. um, and how much work was put into her, it was, um, it was quite special. Did you ever drop a subtle hint uh, to be allowed to ride her in a gallop? I remember um, one morning um, – the two apprentices were at Peter Moody's were Jake Duffy. He was riding in town at the time, mm. and, and it was me who only barely just started riding. And uh, Paddy Bell, um, he was he was the the head track work rider there, and he was he was riding Black Caviar in, in every piece of her work. Um, and he had an injury one morning, unfortunately, and um, I think there was a decision from Moody um, which one of us were going to have to gallop her the next couple of mornings, and. Jake Duffy got the nod, so <laughs> did he? Um, I, 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 put, I put my hand up. I put my hand up and I put my case board. But he was the more experienced <laughs> senior rider, and yeah. he got he got to sit on her back. But I, I still got to sit on her back for for a quick photo, John, that no one can take off me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't take that away from you. No, that's correct. Now, Regan, she was a bit of a Greta Garbo, wasn't she? She liked to be alone. Wasn't the friendliest mare in the world. No, she wasn't. She she wanted to be left alone. Um, like all those good mares, they they got so much presence about them, and they, and and they know they're good, you know. So, you know, every now and then she'd pop her head over the door, but more times than not, she'd just be sort of in the corner and and just doing her own thing. And you know, she had a lot of had a lot of class about her. Peter Moody provided your very first winner, and it just happened to be at your first ride in a race. 27th of July, 2013, at Donald, and you won a maiden on Alana's Dream. Now, punters weren't too concerned about the green kid because she started favourite. No, that's correct. Um, I was probably ready to go. I was ready to go sort of, you know, that month um, or even sort of a little bit before, and, um, you know, I was basically, you know, that eager to get out there and ride and, um Peter just really wanted to sort of pick, handpick the sort of right horse that he thought would would suit me going out there for my first first race ride, and I owe that all to him. He he knew that she was going to be a great chance on that day, and he and he handpicked her and sent her down to Donald for me, and um, we were able to get the job done with um with my family there. So it was a special day, John. A Cranbourne trainer called Sean Mathrick was the trainer to put you on your first city winner. It was a mare called Dare I Ask. At Caulfield, it was almost a year later, so you must have been thinking it would never come. No, that's correct, and um, everything sort of happened quickly after that. But dare I ask, was my it was my first Metropolitan winner um, at Caulfield for for Sean Maverick, who gave me a few rides during my um, during my time as an apprentice, and 
um, things just kick-started for that, John. That was that was all the sort of adrenaline and, and, and the racing bug that I needed to, to keep striving forward. Your very first stakes winner was a mare called Keyside, trained by Peter Moody. You won a couple of races on this street crime mare, including a listed race at Morfordville. Peter Moody would often slip one or two to Adelaide, wouldn't he? Yeah, most definitely. He would he would play some um, very place his horses very good and and where they could win and um, he would flick a few horses to Adelaide and lucky enough I had an association with with John Camilleri and I, my first ever winner as we was talking about just before Alana's Dream was owned by Fairway Thoroughbreds John Camilleri and mm. um, and so was so was Keyside so um, I was able to ride that her and my first stakes winner and um, yeah it was good to be able to repay the faith and. Um, get that first sort of black type on the board, John. So Keyside and Alana's Dream carried those very well-known Camilleri colours, the white with the green and yellow chequered sash uh, that Fairway carried in several Group 1 wins. Yeah, no, that's correct. I've, um, I've had a lot of, lot of luck for those in, in those colours over the years. You were part of an amazing event at Mornington in 2014, when you rode in a race against your brother and your dad. Now, Jamie had made a comeback after 20 years out of the saddle. uh, Jake won the race, you ran third, and Dad finished with the tail enders, but it didn't matter. It was a unique occasion and it got a lot of press. It was widely reported. Yeah, it most definitely was. It's something that we never thought would would happen obviously as you mentioned before john dad dad stopped riding initially um you know four or five years before i was even born so um so for him to sort of make that comeback and you know it was just something that sort of we were completely blindsided by and just never thought we you know would would ever sort of get it get an opportunity to, to to ride all in the same race together so um you know we got photos and and everything that we can look back on for the rest of our life but Mm. You know, it was very special and um, it was a great day. And I imagine you and Jake have never let him forget it. No, exactly right. He, I think he's, his horse was 50 to 1 or so and he, he still still believed he could win mm. um, at the races and, and cantering to the barriers. And, um, yeah, Jake got the nod, obviously, and, and Dad finished at the rear and I finished just in the place getters. Yeah. Well, how long did his comeback last? He rode for a while, didn't he? He, he did ride for a while. Um, he come back for about a year and a half. He was able to he was able to ride ride and train a winner at, at Mooney Valley, um, you know, which was a really good feat. Like I'd never thought he would, you know, he would he'd be able to sort of come back to that with just with opportunities to come back to that metropolitan level. But he was able to ride a winner at Mooney Valley and. Um, he was just sort of um, chipping away, John, and um, just riding for a few trainers at Pakenham and, and, and Cranbourne. And um, he did go over to King Island a couple couple of times. They have, you know, they have a racetrack there, and and they race there, um, you know, throughout a season. And and he, he got to win the premiership there. And yeah, it was a really good um, really good feat for him. And I think he I think he ever since he did retire back in 1994, I think he he really did have the eager to. Um, you know, and the spirit to sort of want want to get back to racing and you know race riding at some stage, and um, you know now he can always say he did it. He he did come back and and he was mm. successful in his comeback, and 
you can always look back on that now and, and be proud of it. And you were telling me he's still in the game. He's still in Victoria where he's breaking horses, he's pre-training horses and he's spelling horses. Yes, correct. He's, he's, he's in um, a place called Nano Goon. Um, and they've got a property out there, him and his partner, Lynn, Lynn Shand, who's got her trainer's licence. And um, dad, dad still breaks in horses um, and, you know, still they do pre-training and spelling and um, train a few of their own ones. So um, he's very, very busy still. When Peter Moody walked away from racing in 2016, you were lucky enough to be transferred to that magnificent training centre at Euroa. And you had a great run in the Hayes, Hayes and Dabenig phase of your career, which was fairly injury-free, Regan, wasn't it? You had a good run. I had a very good run, John. Um, I remember after after Peter walked away, Peter gave me a call and said, you're going to have to find yourself a new boss pretty quickly. Um and I didn't know I didn't know where I was going to go or you know or what or what was going to happen. And um, lucky enough, I went for a meeting up at Lindsay Park in Euroa. Um, you know, and you know I was as impressed and you know with, with their whole setup and you know it's, it's obviously a you know brilliant operation. And lucky enough, they give me opportunity um, to to sign up to them, and um, they really really give me the the kickstarter that I needed. Um, mm. They, I wasn't, you know, towards the end, I wasn't just riding horses that needed the claim off it. They were, they were putting me on in, in really good races and listed races, and it's the confidence that I needed. I needed someone to yeah. um, back me and put me on in those good races, and David Hayes did that with, um, with no issue at all. Well, David Hayes must have rated your talents very highly to give you so many opportunities on a horse like Red Kirk Warrior because uh, I can imagine other high-profile riders would have had their managers working hard to get them on that horse. Yes, most definitely. He was a very highly spruced horse, even you know, even before he had his first start in Australia. And um, he had his first start at Mooney, Mooney Valley, it was, mm. in, in Australia, and um, he ran enormous that day. So it was obviously in everyone's mind. And lucky enough, first up in the Newmarket Handicap, he only carried 52 and a half kilos that day and mm. um, lucky enough I was in the right place at the right time and, and David entrusted me with the ride and I was happy to get the job done. Well, he won second up in Australia in the Group 3 Sandown Stakes with Craig Williams in the saddle and he didn't race again for 17 weeks going into the new market. He was a great freshie, Red Kirk Warrior, when did you find out you had the ride? That must have come as a pleasant surprise. I remember a couple of weeks prior, I sent him, I sent him a message and said that I can do the weight no problem and I won't let you down. And I'll never forget the message he sent back to me. He said, he goes, I will ask the owner, he will win. So, you know, that obviously gave me, <laughs> gave me a lot of confidence. And then when I got the nod that I got the ride, um, but he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't greatly fancied in that race, so John. So mm. I, I knew, I knew how good he was going, and and the the camp knew how good he was going. But he also started as, as a little bit of a price, so mm. um, you know. So anyway, it was a great win. They all went to the flat side in that new market. Every runner uh, went to the far side of the track, and he raced handy outside start turn to the three hundred meters mark, where he just exploded away. He won brilliantly and you look very excited pulling up. 
Yeah, most definitely. He, he, he sat outside star turn and I've never had a horse just travel so good for me in a run. And um, I just remember sort of, you know, coming to the coming to the 500, Bossy was starting to feel for star turn and Red Coat Warrior just, you know, just basically just grabbed the bridle and, and went past him that easily and um, still wasn't that confident that I was going to win my first group one. You know, as you know, it's your first one and it exploded that day and, a lot of emotions come out after the after the races. There's a lot of hard work and you know a lot of people to thank to sort of get to, get to that moment in your career. It's um, mm. very rewarding. Well, David Hayes decided to whisk him to Sydney after that, and you rode him in the Doncaster. He finished midfield. Any excuses? Um, it didn't like coming Sydney way, John. Um, I didn't think he was as effective Sydney Sydney way, and the other thing was. Any, any type of soft ground um, or, or heavy ground, he didn't like it at all. He was a horse that liked that concrete, firm ground, um, and, and he relished it. And he also was a horse that was very good first up as well. Although he won, a, he won a new, another new market second up, mm-hmm. he was explosive first up. And so, yeah, there were, there were a few excuses. And he, he was 1,200 straight to the mile that, that, that time too, which is um, yeah. only a couple, only a, a very select group of horses have ever done that. Well, Craig Williams was out of a place on him in the all-age stakes and then he was turned out for a spell. But you got back on him in the spring when his first run back was in the Group 2 Bobby Lewis quality and he absolutely bolted him. That was that was an enormous run that day. Um, we knew he had come back extremely well and that was the race that he, he needed to win to... Um, to to stamp himself as an Everest horse and, and, and to secure that slot in the Everest. And um, he just absolutely toyed with them that day. He was explosive. And and from, from that win, he was able to get that slot, slot in the Everest. Right. Well, <clears throat> what a massive thrill for you at that stage of your career to be caught up in the hype of the Everest. And it was the first Everest. I think I didn't realise how, how successful and how big it wasn't was going to be John until until that that week leading up to it the the gallops um, the barrier draw out on the harbour on, on a boat and you know and then and then being at the races that day uh, it was a credit to to Volandis and you know and the whole you know the whole crew behind him it's it was so successful you know that that whole week and and um, the marketing was brilliant because the crowd they had at the Everest. That day was just something I've never seen before. It was very electric, um, and that's when I realised, oh, geez, this race is this race is going to be huge for the you know for the next for, for for a very long time anyway. He only beat a couple home, but he wasn't that far from the winner, just over four lengths. Red Zell, of course, was the initial winner, so he was competitive, wasn't he? He was competitive, um, but as I said before, probably not, probably not as effective second up in in that Sydney way of going and, and also on a track that um, just had a little bit of given it that day, which probably, you know, which probably wasn't ideal for him. So mm. I think the best horse won the race that day and um, but he, he didn't disgrace himself at all, John, that's for sure. Well, a few weeks after the Everest, he was unplaced but not disgraced in the Group 1 Dali Classic during the Cup Carnival, and then he was turned out again. Now, he was back in the autumn in the best form of his career. 
to win a fabulous Group 1 double, the Lightning and another new market. His Lightning win was enormous. I had a look at it again the other day. He was last of 10 to the 300 metres where you switched him to the extreme outside and he hurtled home to grab Red Zell right on the line. I believe this was his best win, um, John. He was absolutely electric this day. I believe they had they had the blinkers on him, um, and he jumped out. It was only it was only a it was only a small field that that day, and um, he just travelled brilliantly in behind him, and almost travelling good to uh, too good. I had to. I had to almost give him a little bit of a check mid race just to just to get him back off heel so I could bring him to the outside and mm. he ran down a horse called Red Zell who was on a who was on a tremendous winning streak and um, he didn't have any momentum going into that race. So I had to as I said, I had to check him off heels and once he got balanced he was the sectionals that he reeled off to, to beat Red Zell was um, nothing short of amazing. Just get you to stand by Regan whilst we clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you after this. The 2021 English Easter sale produced amazing figures, grossing 132 million with an average of $371,000. Top price lot was a schnitzel cult out of Oaks winner and Caulfield Cup runner-up Rising Romance, knocked down to Team Hawks for $2.5 million. The sale will also be remembered as the one that hosted the appearance of the last yearlings to be offered by the iconic Reduce Choice, who died in 2019. His final yearling to be offered was Lot 410, a cult from the Japanese mayor Malada, which was very fittingly led in by Arrowfield's Adam Shankly, who had worked with Reduce Choice for more than 17 years. The cult was passed in, but later purchased by bloodstock agent Guy Mulcaster and will go to the Chris Wallace stable. Reduce Choice had been a headliner at Australian yearling sales since his first crop went under the hammer at the 2003 Easter sale. He was to go on to become champion first season sire in 2004, champion two-year-old sire in 05 and 06, champion overall sire three times and at the height of his powers, commanded a service fee of $330,000. It was a bittersweet experience for John Massara and the Arrowfield team when the last crop by this colossus of Australian breeding took the stage in the Riverside Auditorium. The English Easter Sale 2021 brought down the curtain on the 20-year reign of an incredible horse. My special guest is Regan Bayliss. Well, in his second new market, they used both sides of the track. You actually led the group on the grandstand side and you just scraped in from a very good imported horse called Brave Smash and it was your third Group 1 win. Yep, that's correct, John. It was also my, my 21st birthday um, birthday celebrations that night, so that was... Mm. That was a very special day. I had I had a lot of family there and had my partner Sheridan there watching. Um, and um, that was a terrific win. A lot of people wrote him off after that. that they they labelled him as a just just a fresh horse, and they didn't think that he could um, peak again for 
in a new market to carry the top weight. It was a tremendous win. It was really showed his his um his will to win. Um, he really just pinned his ears back and and had a crack that day. And he was he was electric and and held off a very good field. Um, Brave Smash and I think just in behind Brave Smash was a horse called Merchant Navy who went on to win over at Royal Ascot. So um, it was a yeah it was a tremendous win. Redkirk Warrior went for a spell after the new market. And on his return, he was prepared for a first-up tilt at the famous Diamond Jubilee Stakes at Royal Ascot, where he'd won his first two races early in his career. He finished well back in the Diamond Jubilee with Frankie de Tory in the saddle. Was Frankie always going to ride him in that race? No, it was a it was a decision from David Hayes and the owner. It was, it was very character-building for me. It was probably the the first horse that I've had a lot of success on and, um, and and been taken off. And there's been a lot since then. And that's just a part of the game. And um, they wanted someone like, how could you not go with, with you know, with Frankie Dottori, the success he's had over his career. He's a, you know, he's, he's a first, first ballot Hall of Famer and, mm. um, and the success he's had at Royal Ascot. So I can see why they went, went that route. And unfortunately it didn't come off for him. And I was able to get it, get back on him in, in the July cup. Well, that must have been exciting. Did you get a call from David about that? Yes, that's correct. I was actually on holidays at the time um, um, in Los Angeles and um, and I got for, over there for Mark Zara's wedding and I got a, call, got a call straight after that race saying that the owner wants to change and can you ride him in the July Cup? So I think I went from drinking a pina colada to – to going for a run, John, to to get into to get into shape to to tune up to riding that day. But, uh, I was still I was still only young then, so that was that was um that was the first sort of global exposure I got to to go over there and and um and to ride in the July Cup. Although although he wasn't he, he didn't perform up to his best. Just being there that whole week, I was able to ride ride out for to Luca Kamani and, and and a few trainers and and gallop him on the July course and. Just being on a on a favoured runner in, in in a race like that was something I'll never forget. Redkirk Warrior had five more Australian starts, and uh, he was obviously not quite himself. You rode him in three of them. He wasn't disgraced, but his best days were obviously behind him. But he did a wonderful job in a very light racing career. He, he most certainly did. Um, a lot of credit has to go to the Lindsay Park team and. The Lindsay, the Lindsay Park Farrier. Um, not not many people know, but he he wasn't he wasn't a sound horse. Um, he had very very um, ordinary feet um, that had to be sort of patched up every every time he went to the races. And um, so how they got those sort of three good preparations out of them was a credit to the whole team and um, something I'll forever be thankful for because it put me on the map. How was it arranged for you to have a ride? On New York's famous Belmont track. So I was over there. I was over there on holidays and uh, with my partner Sheridan and um, her uncle Rodney Payne. He's a he's a jockey valet over there in America, and we're over there in New York um, visiting him. And Richard Freeman had a horse called Saracen, um, um, owned by Ozzy Kerr, and um, I just happened to be there at the right time, right place, right time. And we went to track work one morning and. We were just walking away, uh, walking around, and uh, the strapper there said, uh, "We haven't got a rider yet." 
So um, obviously spoke to Richard and he was happy for me to ride it. So Rodney and, and his and his friend, a trainer at Belmont, um, Tom Morley, mm-hmm. um, they, they, they took me into the office and said, we need to get this kid signed up as soon as possible. He's riding that horse um, on Saturday. And um, they got me signed up. And before you knew it, I was – I was in the jockey's room at Belmont, ready to ready to ride. Goodness me, you've had a few thrills for a young fella. Yeah, that was probably that was very very surreal going out on that famous. I, although I rode on the grass, you have to canter off. You go through the tunnel and you have to canter off. It was Belmont Oaks Day, so there was a there was a big crowd there, and after, you had to canter off on the on the on the tr- uh, the dirt track, the sand track, before you got on onto the to the grass track and. I don't think I've ever had a bigger thrill cantering off on that famous Belmont track. So it wasn't it wasn't organised or anything. So that's why it was so such a shock to me, you know. And you know the history that's that's occurred at that Belmont track with Secretariat and all those great horses over the years. So mm. to be able to have a ride there, um, it was to to me that was one of the biggest thrills I got. Another really nice horse you got to ride for Hayes Hayes and Dabenig was Catchy who had won a Blue Diamond Stakes for Craig Williams, and you got to ride her in two races later on. The first of them was a win in a Group 2, the Dane Hill Stakes at Flemington. Yes, that's correct, John. Catchy was a – she was a terrific mare. She's probably she's probably one of the best best fillies or mares that um, I've gotten to sit on, and we, we never saw the best of her. Um, unfortunately, her, her career got cut short, and – um, she had to, she went to go and be a broodmare, but she was a champion two year old. Um, obviously rode in a lot of track work and trials, and um, and um, Craig Williams was associated with her, so she won everything as a two year old. She won the Blue Diamond, and um, she won everything. And um, she, yeah, she was terrific. And um, before when she went and had that spell, I was coming back from a from a broken wrist, probably the, the first race fall I've had and the first proper injury that I've had. Mm. So um, I needed, I needed a couple of good opportunities to really put me back in the lights. And on that day, I won on Red Coat Warrior and the Bobby Lewis. And then um, one race or two races after, I won the Dane Hill Stakes on on Catchy for uh, Robert Crabtree, who has been a good supporter of mine throughout my career. Mm. You won three races on a horse called Annus Mirabilis for Stuart Webb in the 2016-17 season including the famous Adelaide Cup over 3,200 metres, and that was just two days after your first Newmarket win on Red Kirk Warrior. What a weekend. Yeah, that was brilliant. Um, that was absolutely brilliant, um, John. And uh, he was an ex-trained um, Lloyd Williams horse, and he sort of mixed up his form a little bit. That when, Once Stewie Webb got hold of him, um, he took a couple of runs to get right, and once he got right, he just – he was an electric stayer when he was right. And that was a terrific weekend, and my birthday falls around that weekend as well. So it was a weekend I'll never forget. And at that time, I was young and naive and thought, geez, how easy is this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that, as I said, that was a terrific weekend. I had my cousin Liam um, come over with me, and um, he was very sort of green to racing. And, he, yeah, he, I flew him over with me to Adelaide, mm. and, yeah, it was a great night. The group one – treble uh, you achieved on Red Kirk Warrior brought you under notice for a stint in Hong Kong. You happily accepted, 
You wrote about a dozen winners there, despite missing a lot of time with a hand injury. Yes, no, that's correct, John. Um, always something, since I was younger, I always wanted to get to Hong Kong at some stage during my career. And Looking back, back on it now, I probably went when I was a little bit too young, a um, little bit too still immature, and um, Steve Rotten gave me the opportunity um, on the back of the success of Red Coat Warrior and um, you know, they look at CVs and, and I had great, three group ones on my record at that stage and, and, and a few other black type races. So I was lucky enough to get um, a three-month stint initially, three-month contract over there. And um, it was a tremendous experience. It definitely matured me up and, and um, really sort of hardened me, hardened me up in, in, in mm. the sense of there's a lot of failures and, um, you know, a lot of trouble and, a lot of things that go over there that, you know, you, you, you have to have a thick skin and um, that really sort of moulded me um, coming out of there. Easily your biggest thrill in Hong Kong was to ride the great Douglas White's very first winner as a trainer. He was tickle pink and so were you. Yeah, no, that's correct. A horse called Adonis. It was it was my first meeting. It was the first meeting back of the season coming off, a, coming off my broken hand injury and um, – as you know, it's very tough. So I broke my hand, and um, I wasn't popular after that in the jockeys in the in the whole sort of, you know, that's how sort of Hong Kong works. If you if you have an injury, it, it takes it just takes a lot of lot of time to sort of get back out there and um, you know, and, and get on a horse that's that's favoured and get on a chance. And I was riding a lot of track work for Douglas leading up that to that in the off season, and um, lucky enough, Douglas gave me the opportunity, and I was able to repay his faith and. Yeah, it's, it's 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 pretty cool actually to look back on that and, and to say that I've ridden you know Douglas White's first winner as a trainer. He's mm. he's a he's a um, he was a terrific jockey, obviously a champion jockey multiple times, and um, to ride his first winner is is something again, John, that I'll look back on and, and be very proud of. And the winners have continued to flow for Douglas White. There's not much doubt he's made the transition to training successfully. No, he's a terrific trainer. I, I spent. I spent a couple, you know, a, a lot of months riding track work there, and um, he's very switched on, very hands-on. Rides his own horses, track work, and and knows how they feel. And he's got uh, a great operation, and I'm sure he's going to be successful for many years to come. The best horse you've ridden since relocating to Sydney is the massively talented Libertini, trained by Anthony Cummings for Jerry Harvey. You've ridden her in two races for a brilliant win in the Group Two Premier Stakes and an unplaced effort in the Everest, but only four lengths behind Classic Legend. You must have been pretty excited going into the Everest. Yes, I was I was very excited. And that was a time where I only just just moved to Sydney and I just needed to find a good one to, to sort of put me on the map. And I was only there for sort of maybe a month and a half and I got the opportunity um, to ride Libertini in the, in the Group 2 Premier, which is a lead-up race to the Everest, probably the main lead-up race to the Everest. Um, and she beat some very good horses. She beat Nature Strip and she beat Classic Legend, as you mentioned, that day. And mm. Gee, she was electric that day. And she really appreciates firm ground. So that, that the springtime's probably her time that she really sort of shines. As you know, we can get a, a fair few wet tracks um, during autumn. So uh, she was electric that day. and um, it's good to sort of repay the faith of Anthony for, for bringing me to Sydney. There's no better example of how much prize money an honest horse can win than Mizzy 
who unbelievably took 10 starts to win her maiden. But because she's finished close up in so many stakes races, she's amassed almost 1.7 million. And just recently, you finished second on Mizzy in two Group 1s, the Canterbury Stakes and the Coolmore Classic. Yeah, that's correct. Um, she's a very tough, honest man, Mizzy, and I rode her, um, I rode her in the, uh, the Canterbury Stakes and she just just got beat on the line to um, Savatiano. She nearly, she nearly, she nearly ran down, ran down Savatiano and um, just missed out that day. And then she carried, she backed up a week later and carried the top weight, 58 kilos in the Coolmore. And she started 25 to one that day and, and she ran a bold race running second to Crone. So mm. um, very close to, to crack my first group one here in Sydney, but hopefully it's not far away around the corner. She was disappointing Regan in the George Ryder and in the Robert Sangster in Adelaide. Had she come to the end of it by then? Yeah, most definitely. I think she was third up in the Canterbury Stakes, um, and I think she was peaking for that run, and then she peaked at the uh, the week later in the Coolmore, and then she struck. She you know wait for age level in the in the George Ryder on, on a track that was quite soft. Mm. She didn't handle it that day, and and she did come to the end of her tether in the Robert Sangster stake. So she had a good campaign to look back on and um, I think she's not far off going through the broodmare sales. This is the time to acknowledge the support of your greatest fan, your partner Sheridan, who's a Sydney girl, but she's happy to go wherever Regan Bayless goes. I think you met her at the races in Sydney. Yeah, no, I met her on Golden Slipper Day Um when I rode a winner that day on a horse called Darren in the in the Derby Munro, and she was working for the ATC at that stage, and um, I met her I met her then, and I was actually riding in Sydney for a couple of weekends after that, and took Sheridan for dinner, and yeah, things just sort of snowboarded from there, and she's been a great supporter of mine, and she moved to she packed up and and left her family and friends to move to Melbourne with me, and then moved over in Hong Kong, which was far from easy on uh, on both of us over there because it's very tough and and then um back to melbourne and then to sydney so um yeah she's been a great supporter of mine and um very lucky now sheridan is a daughter a former jockey and a very well-known racing identity in neil Payne, who's uh, another daughter of course uh, taylor is married to brenton avdulla who was a guest on the podcast a few weeks ago so here we are with Sheridan uh, following Taylor's example and becoming the partner of a successful jockey. Yes, no, that's correct. It's a uh, Neil Payne, obviously, you know, a good jockey in his own right, and now he works uh, works as an integral part of the operation at the the Waterhouse Bot Stable, and um, they've been great to me since moving to moving to Sydney, and um, they've been great support for me and. Yeah, it's a really good racing family. I'm happy to be a part of it. Regan, you're taller than the average jockey, but you're very comfortable riding at 54. And you tell me for the right opportunity and with a bit of notice, you can get down to 53. Yes, that's correct. Um, I'm taller than the average jockey, but luckily enough, I'm I'm fairly light-boned and I'm fairly skinny. So my brother Jake... Is the same size as dad. He's, he's a little bit smaller than me, but also a little bit stockier around mm. the shoulders. And um, as you know, that can be that can be quite worse than being that little bit taller, but that lighter bone and skinnier. So 
I, luckily enough, I, I, I took after my mum's build, which if I had it been mum's height and, and dad's build, then I, I don't think I'd be riding. So lucky enough, I can ride competitively at 54 kilos, um, which is usually the minimum weight. And during the carnivals, if an op- right opportunity comes up, I can I can get down to 53 kilos. So mm. I think it's a, it's a good feather to have in my cap to be able to sort of be competitive around that, those weights. You're in a tough town, Regan, where racing success depends largely on hard work and commitment. And I'm delighted to hear that you're here for the long haul. Yeah, most definitely. Sydney's a place that I've I spent a little bit of time as an apprentice. Peter Moody sent me here to Sydney when I was a kid. Um, I spent a couple of months during the spring carnival and he had a satellite stable here run by Claire Cunningham at that stage and I absolutely loved loved it, loved every part of it, loved the way they run things here in Sydney and loved the racetracks, the horses, the trainers, the competitive jockey riding ranks and it's a place I've always wanted to get back to and since getting the opportunity to come to Sydney, it's it's been absolutely tremendous and um, I'm here for the long long haul and I know you can't look at things as if they're a 12-month plan. You've got to, you've got to plan for the next sort of three, four, five years and that's what I'm doing. I'm slowly building relationships with um, a lot of different stables and, you know, I'm starting to sort of um, reap the rewards of, of, of the hard work. Been a delight having you on the podcast, Regan, on a Sunday morning. Thanks for joining us and uh, I hope you have a lot of luck uh, right throughout the big spring carnival coming up. Thank you very much for having me, John. Absolute pleasure. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. 